Chapter 10 of Hannibal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shane Nolan. Hannibal by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 10. The true reason why Hannibal could not be arrested in his triumphant career seems not to have been because the Romans did not pursue the right kind of policy toward him, but because thus far they had no general who was his equal. Whoever was sent against him soon proved to be his inferior. Hannibal could outmaneuver them all in stratagem and could conquer them on the field. There was, however, now destined to appear a man capable of coping with Hannibal. It was young Scipio, the one who saved the life of his father at the Battle of Ticinius. This Scipio, though the son of Hannibal's first great antagonist of that name, is commonly called in history the elder Scipio, for there was another of his name after him, who was greatly celebrated for his wars against the Carthaginians in Africa. These last two received from the Roman people the surname of Africanus in honor of their African victories, and the one who now comes upon the stage was called Scipio Africanus the Elder, or sometimes simply the Elder Scipio. The deeds of the Scipio who attempted to stop Hannibal at the Rhone and upon the Po were so wholly eclipsed by his son and by the other Scipio who followed him that the former is left out of view and forgotten in designating and distinguishing the others. Our present Scipio first appears upon the stage in the exercise of military command after the Battle of Cannae. He was a subordinate officer and on the day following the battle, he found himself at a place called Canusium, which was a short distance from Cannae, on the way toward Rome, with a number of other officers of his own rank, and with the broken masses and detachments of the army coming in from time to time, faint, exhausted, and in despair. The rumor was that both consuls were killed. These fragments of the army had therefore no one to command them, and unanimously agreed to make Scipio their commander in the emergency until some superior officer should arrive, or they should get orders from Rome. An incident here occurred which showed, in a striking point of view, the boldness and energy of the young Scipio's character. At the very meeting in which he was placed in command, and when they were overwhelmed with perplexity and care, an officer came in and reported that in another part of the camp there was an assembly of officers and young men of rank, headed by a certain Metallus, who had decided to give up, the cause of their country in despair, and that they were making arrangements to proceed immediately to the seacoast, obtain ships, and sail away to seek a new home in some foreign lands, considering their cause in Italy as utterly lost and ruined. The officer proposed that they should call a council and deliberate what was best to do. Deliberate, said Scipio. This is not a case for deliberation, but for action. Draw your swords and follow me. So saying, he pressed forward at the head of the party to the quarters of Metallus. They marched boldly into the apartment where he and his friends were in consultation. Scipio held up his sword, and in a very solemn manner pronounced an oath, binding himself not to abandon his country in this hour of her distress, nor to allow any other Roman citizen to abandon her. If he should be guilty of such treason, he called upon Jupiter, by the most dreadful imprecations, to destroy him utterly, house, family, fortune, soul, and body. And now, Metallus, I call upon you, 
said he, and all who are with you, to take the same oath. You must do it, otherwise you have got to defend yourselves against these swords of ours, as well as those of the Carthaginians. Metellus and his party yielded, nor was it wholly to fear that they yielded. It was to the influence of hope quite as much as to that of fear, the courage, the energy, and the martial ardor which Scipio's conduct evinced awakened a similar spirit in them and made them hope again that possibly their country might yet be saved. The news of the awful defeat and destruction of the Roman army flew swiftly to Rome and produced universal consternation. The whole city was in an uproar. There were soldiers in the army from almost every family, so that every woman and child throughout the city was distracted by the double agitation of inconsolable grief at the death of their husband or their father, slain in the battle, and of terrible fear that Hannibal and his raging followers were about to burst in through the gates of the city to murder them. The streets of the city, and especially the Forum, were thronged with vast crowds of men, women, and children, who filled the air with loud lamentations and with cries of terror and despair. The magistrates were not able to restore order. The Senate actually adjourned that the members of it might go about the city and use their influence and their power to produce silence at least, if they could not restore composure. The streets were finally cleared. The women and the children were ordered to remain at home. Armed patrols were put on guard to prevent tumultuous assemblies forming. Men were sent off on horseback on the road to Canusium and Cannae to get more accurate intelligence, and then the Senate assembled again and began to consider with as much calmness as they could command what was to be done. The panic at Rome was, however, in some measure a false alarm, for Hannibal, contrary to the expectation of all Italy, did not go to Rome. His generals urged him very strongly to do so. Nothing could prevent, they said, his gaining immediate possession of the city. But Hannibal refused to do this. Rome was strongly fortified and had immense population. His army, too, was much weakened by the Battle of Cannae, and he seemed to have thought it most prudent not to attempt the reduction of Rome until he should have received reinforcements from home. It was now so late in the season that he could not expect such reinforcements immediately, and he accordingly determined to select some place more accessible than Rome and make it his headquarters for the winter. He decided in favor of Capua, which is a large and powerful city, one or two hundred miles southeast of Rome. Hannibal, in fact, conceived the design of retaining possession of Italy and making Capua the capital of the country, leaving Rome to itself to decline. As under such circumstances, it inevitably must to the rank of a second city. Perhaps he was tired of the fatigues and hazards of war, and having narrowly escaped ruin before the Battle of Cannae, he now resolved that he would not rashly incur any new dangers. It was a great question with him whether he should go forward to Rome or attempt to build up a new capital of his own at Capua. The question, which of these two he ought to have done, was a matter of great debate then, and it has been discussed a great deal by military men in every age since his day. Right or wrong, Hannibal decided to establish his own capital at Capua and to leave Rome for the present undisturbed. He, however, sent immediately to Carthage for reinforcements. The messenger whom he sent was one of his generals named Mago. 
Mago made the best of his way to Carthage with his tidings of victory and his bushel of rings collected, as had been already said, from the field of Cannae. The city of Carthage was greatly excited by the news which he brought. The friends and patrons of Hannibal were elated with enthusiasm and pride, and they taunted and reproached his enemies with the opposition to him they had manifested when he was originally appointed to the command of the army of Spain. Mago met the Carthaginian Senate, and with a very spirited and eloquent speech, he told them how many glorious battles Hannibal had fought, and how many victories he had won. He had contended with the greatest generals that the Romans could bring against him, and had conquered them all. He had slain, he said, in all, over 200,000 men. All Italy was now subject to his power. Capua was his capital, and Rome had fallen. He concluded by saying that Hannibal was in need of considerable additional supplies of men and money and provisions, which he did not doubt the Carthaginians would send without any unnecessary delay. He then produced before the Senate the great bag of rings, which he had brought and poured them upon the pavement of the Senate House as a trophy of the victories which he had been announcing. This would perhaps have been very well for Hannibal if his friends had been contented to have left the case where Mago left it but some of them could not resist the temptation of taunting his enemies, and especially Hanno, who, as will be recollected, originally opposed his being sent to Spain. They turned to him and asked him triumphantly what he thought now of his facetious opposition to so brave a warrior. Hanno rose. The Senate looked toward him and were profoundly silent, wondering what he would have to reply. Anno, with an air of perfect ease and composure, spoke somewhat as follows. I should have said nothing, but should have allowed the Senate to take what action they pleased on Mago's proposition, if I had not been particularly addressed. As it is, I will say that, I think now, just as I have always thought, we are plunged into a most costly and most useless war, and are, as I conceive, no nearer the end of it, now than ever notwithstanding all these boasted successes the emptiness of them is clearly shown by the inconsistency of hannibal's pretensions as to what he has done with the demands that he makes in respect to what he wishes us to do he says he has conquered all his enemies and yet he wants us to send more soldiers he has reduced all italy the most fertile country in the world to subjection and reigns over it at capua and yet he calls upon us for corn and then to crown all, he sends us bushels of gold rings as a specimen of the riches he has obtained by plunder, and accompanies the offering with a demand for new supplies of money. In my opinion, his success is all elusive and hollow. There seems to be nothing substantial in his situation except his necessities, and the heavy burdens upon the state which these necessities impose. Notwithstanding Hanno's sarcasms, the Carthaginians resolved to sustain Hannibal and to send him the supplies that he needed. There were, however, long in reaching him. Various difficulties and delays occurred. The Romans, though they could not dispossess Hannibal from his position in Italy, raised armies in different countries and waged extended wars with the Carthaginians and their allies in various parts of the world, both by sea and land. The result was that Hannibal remained fifteen or sixteen years in Italy, engaged during all this time in a lingering struggle with the Roman power 
without ever being able to accomplish any decisive measures. During his period, he was sometimes successful and victorious, and sometimes he was very hard-pressed by his enemies. It is said that his army was very much enervated and enfeebled by the comforts and luxuries they enjoyed at Capua. Capua was a very rich and beautiful city, and the inhabitants of it had opened their gates to Hannibal of their own accord, preferring, as they said, his alliance to that of the Romans. The officers, as the officers of any army almost do, when they find themselves established in a rich and powerful city, after the fatigues of a long and honorable campaign, gave themselves up to festivities and rejoicing, to games, shows, and entertainments of every kind, which they soon learn infinitely to prefer to the toil and danger of marches and battles. Whatever may have been the cause, there is no question about the fact that, from the time Hannibal and his army got possession of their comfortable quarters in Capua, the Carthaginian power began to gradually decline. As Hannibal determined to make that city the Italian capital instead of Rome, he, of course, when established there, felt in some degree settled and at home, and was less interested than he had been in plans for attacking the ancient capital. Still the war went on. Many battles were fought, many cities were besieged, the Roman power gaining ground all the time, though not, however, by any very decisive victories. In these contests there appeared at length a new Roman general named Marcellus, and, either on account of his possessing a bolder and more active temperament, or else in consequence of the change in the relative strength of the two contending powers, he pursued a more aggressive policy than Fabius had thought it prudent to attempt. Marcellus was, however, cautious and wary in his enterprises, and he laid his plans with so much sagacity and skill that he was almost always successful. The Romans applauded very highly his activity and ardor without, however, forgetting their obligations to Fabius for his caution and defensive reserve. They said that Marcellus was a sword of their commonwealth as Fabius had been its shield. The Romans continued to prosecute this sort of warfare, being more and more successful the longer they continued it, until at last they advanced to the very walls of Capua and threatened it with a siege. Hannibal's entrenchment and fortifications were too strong for them to attempt to carry the city by sudden assault. Nor were the Romans even powerful enough to invest the place entirely, so as completely to shut their enemies in. They, however, encamped with a large army in the neighborhood, and assumed so threatening an attitude as to keep Hannibal's forces within a state of continual alarm, and besides the alarm, it was very humiliating and mortifying to Carthaginian pride to find the very seat of their power, as it were, shut up and overawed by an enemy over whom they had been triumphing themselves so short a time before, by a continued series of victories. Hannibal was not himself in Capua. At the time that the Romans came to attack it, he marched, however, immediately to its relief, and attacking the Romans in his turn, endeavored to compel them to raise the siege, as it is technically termed, and retired. They had, however, so entrenched themselves in the positions that they had taken, and the assaults with which he encountered them, had lost so much of their former force, that he could accomplish nothing decisive. He then left the ground with his army and marched himself toward Rome. He encamped himself in the vicinity of the city and threatened to attack it, but the walls and castles and towers with which Rome, as well as Capua, was defended were too formidable 
and the preparations for defense too complete to make it prudent for him to really assail the city. His object was to alarm the Romans and compel them to withdraw their forces from his capital that they might defend their own. There was, in fact, some degree of alarm awakened, and in the discussions which took place among the Roman authorities, the withdrawal of their troops from Capua was proposed, but this proposal was overruled. Even Fabius was against it. Hannibal was no longer to be feared. They ordered back a small detachment from Capua and added to it such forces as they could raise within the city, and then advanced to give Hannibal battle. The preparations were all made, it is said, for an engagement. But a violent storm came on, so violent as to drive the combatants back to their respective camps. This happened, the great Roman historian gravely says, two or three times in succession, the weather immediately becoming serene again, each time, as soon as the respective generals had withdrawn their troops from the intended fight. Something like this may perhaps have occurred, though the fact, doubtless, was that both parties were afraid, each of the other, and were disposed to avail themselves of any excuse to postpone a decisive conflict. There was a time when Hannibal had not been deterred from attacking the Romans, even by the most tempestuous storms. Thus, though, Hannibal did, in fact, in the end, get to the walls of Rome. He did nothing but threaten when he was there, and his encampment near the city can only be considered as bravado. His presence seems to have had excited very little apprehension within the city. The Romans had, in fact, before this time, lost their terror of the Carthaginian arms. To show their contempt of Hannibal, they sold at public auction. The land on which he was encamped while he was upon it besieging the city, and it brought the usual price. Their bidders were, perhaps, influenced somewhat by a patriotic spirit, and by a desire to taunt Hannibal with the very expression of their opinion that his occupation of the land would be very temporary encumbrance. Hannibal, to revenge himself for this taunt, put up for sale at auction in his own camp the shops of one of the principal streets of Rome, and they were bought by his officers with great spirit, it showed that a great change had taken place in the nature of the contest between Carthage and Rome to find these vast powers, which were a very few years before, grappling each other with such destructive and terrible fury on the Po and at Cani, now satisfying their declining animosity with such squibbling as this. When the other modes by which Hannibal attempted to obtain reinforcements failed, he made an attempt to have a second army brought over the Alps under the command of his brother, Hasdrubal. It was a large army, and in their march they experienced the same difficulties, though in a much lighter degree, that Hannibal himself had encountered, and yet of the whole mighty mass which had set out from Spain, nothing reached Hannibal except his brother's head. The circumstances of the unfortunate termination of Hasdrubal's attempts were as followed. When Hasdrubal descended from the Alps, rejoicing in the successful manner in which he had surmounted those formidable barriers, he imagined that all his difficulties were over. He dispatched couriers to his brother Hannibal, informing him that he had scaled the mountains and that he was coming on as rapidly as possible to his aid. The two consuls in office at this time were named, the one Nero and the other Livius. To each of these, as was usual with the Roman consuls, was assigned a particular province and a certain portion of the army to defend it, 
and the laws enjoined upon them very strictly not to leave their respective provinces on any pretext whatever without authority from the roman legislature in this instance livius had been assigned to the northern part of italy and nero to the southern it devolved upon livius therefore to meet and give battle to hasdrubal on his descent from the alps and to nero to remain in the vicinity of hannibal to thwart his plans oppose his progress and if possible conquer and destroy him while his colleague prevented his receiving the expected reinforcements from spain things being in this state the couriers whom hasdrubal sent with his letters had the vigilance of both consuls to elude before they could deliver them into hannibal's hands they did succeed in passing livius but they were intercepted by nero the patrols who seized these messengers brought them to nero's tent nero opened and read the letters all hasdrubal's plans and arrangements were detailed in them very fully so that nero perceived that if he were once to proceed to the northward with such a strong force he could render his colleagues such aid as with the knowledge of hasdrubal's plans which he had obtained from the letters would probably enable them to defeat him whereas if he were to leave livius in ignorance and alone he feared that hasdrubal would be as successful in breaking his way through and in ultimately effecting his junction with hannibal under these circumstances he was of course very earnestly desirous of going northward to render the necessary aid but he was strictly forbidden by law to leave his own province to enter that of his own colleagues without an authority from rome which there is not now time to obtain the laws of military discipline are very strict and imperious and in theory they are never to be disobeyed officers and soldiers of all ranks and graduations must obey the orders which they receive from the authority above them without looking at the consequences or deviating from the line marked out on any pretext whatever it is in fact the very essence of military subordination and efficiency that a command once given suspends all exercise of judgment or discretion on the part of one to whom it is addressed and a good general or a good government would prefer generally that harm should be done by a strict obedience to commands rather than a benefit secured by an unauthorized deviation from them it is a good principle not only in war but in all those cases in social life where men have to act in concert and yet wish to secure efficiency in action and yet there are cases of exception cases where the necessity is so urgent or the advantages to be derived so great where the interest involved are so momentous and the success so sure that a commander concludes to disobey and take the responsibility the responsibility is however very great and the danger in assuming it extreme he who incurs it makes himself liable to the severest penalties from which nothing but clear proof of the most imperious necessity and in addition to it the most triumphant success can save him there is somewhere in english history a story of a naval commander in the service of an english queen who disobeys the orders of his superiors at one time in a case of great emergency at sea and gain by doing so a very important victory immediately afterwards he placed himself under arrest and went into port as a prisoner accused of a crime instead of a commander triumphing in his victory 
he surrendered himself to the queen's officers of justice and sent word to the queen herself that he knew very well that death was the penalty for his offense but that he was willing to sacrifice his life in any way in the service of her majesty he was pardoned nero after much anxious deliberation concluded that the emergency in which he found himself placed was one requiring him to take the responsibility of disobedience he did not however dare to go northward with all his forces for that would be to leave southern italy wholly at the mercy of hannibal he selected therefore from his whole force which consisted of forty thousand men seven or eight thousand of the most efficient and trustworthy the men on whom he could most securely rely both in respect to their ability to bear the fatigues of a rapid march and the courage and energy with which they would meet hasdrubal's forces in the battle at the end of it he was at the time when hasdrubal's letters were intercepted occupying a spacious and well-situated camp this he enlarged and strengthened so that hannibal might not suspect that he intended any diminution of the forces within all this was done very promptly so that in a few hours after he received the intelligence on which he was acting he was drawing off secretly at night a column of six or eight thousand men none of whom knew at all where they were going he proceeded as rapidly as possible to the northward and when he arrived in the northern province he contrived to get into the camp of livius as secretly as he could get out from his own thus of the two armies the one where an accession of force was required was greatly strengthened at the expense of the other without either of the carthaginian generals having suspected the change livius was rejoiced to get so an opportune a reinforcement he recommended that the troops should all remain quietly in camp for a short time until the newly arrived troops could rest and recruit themselves a little after their rapid and fatiguing march but nero opposed this plan and recommended an immediate battle he knew the character of the men that he had brought and he was besides unwilling to risk the dangers which might arise in his own camp in southern italy by too long an absence from it it was decided accordingly to attack hasdrubal at once and the signal for battle was given it is not improbable that hasdrubal would have been beaten by libyus alone but the additional force which nero had brought made the romans altogether too strong for him besides from his position in the front of the battle he perceived from some indications that his watchful eye observed that a part of the troops attacking him were from the southward and he inferred from this that hannibal had been defeated and that in consequence of this the whole united force of the roman army was arrayed against him he was disheartened and discouraged and soon ordered a retreat he was pursued by the various divisions of the roman army and the retreating columns of the carthaginians were soon thrown into complete confusion they became entangled among rivers and lakes and the guides who had undertaken to conduct the army finding that all was lost abandoned them and fled anxious only to save their own lives the carthaginians were soon pent up in a position where they could not defend themselves and from which they could not escape the romans showed them no mercy but went on killing their wretched and despairing victims until the whole army was almost totally destroyed they cut off hasdrubal's head and nero set out that very night after the battle to return it with triumph 
to his own encampment. When he arrived, he sent a troop of horse to throw the head over into Hannibal's camp, a ghastly and horrid trophy of his victory. Hannibal was overwhelmed with disappointment and sorrow at the loss of his army, bringing with it, as it did, the destruction of all his hopes. My fate is sealed, said he. All is lost. I shall send no more news of victory to Carthage. In losing Hasdrubal, my last hope is gone. When Hannibal was in this condition in Italy, the Roman armies, aided by their allies, were gaining gradually against the Carthaginians. Various parts of the world, under the different generals who had been placed in command by the Roman Senate, the news of these victories came continually home to Italy, and the encouraged and animated Romans, while Hannibal and his army, as well as the people who were in alliance with him, were disheartened and depressed by them. Scipio was one of these generals commanding in foreign lands. His province was Spain. The news which came home from his army became more and more exciting as he advanced from conquest to conquest until it seemed that the whole country was going to be reduced to subjection. He overcame one Carthaginian general after another until he reached New Carthage, which he besieged and conquered, and the Roman authority was established fully over the whole land. Scipio then returned in triumph to Rome. The people received him with acclamations. At the next election, they chose him consul. On the allotment of provinces, Sicily fell to him, with power to cross into Africa if he pleased. It evolved on the other consul to carry on the war in Italy more directly against Hannibal. Scipio levied his army, equipped his fleet, and sailed for Sicily. The first thing that he did on his arrival in his province was to project an expedition into Africa himself. He could not, as he wished, face Hannibal directly by marching his troops into the south of Italy, for this was the work allotted to his colleague. He could, however, make an incursion into Africa and even threaten Carthage itself, and this, with the boldness and ardor which marked his character, he resolved to do. He was triumphantly successful in all his plans. His army, imbibing the spirit of enthusiasm which animated their commander and confident of success, went on, as his forces in Spain had done, from victory to victory. They conquered cities. They overran provinces. They defeated and drove back all armies which the Carthaginians could bring against them. And finally, they awakened in the streets and dwellings of Carthage, the same panic and consternation which Hannibal's victorious progress had produced in Rome. The Carthaginians being now, in their turn, reduced to despair, sent ambassadors to Scipio to beg for peace and to ask on what terms he would grant it and withdraw from the country. Scipio replied that he could not make peace. It rested with the Roman Senate, whose servant he was. He specified, however, certain terms which he was willing to have proposed to the Senate, and if the Carthaginians would agree to them, he would grant them a truce, that is, a temporary suspension of hostilities, until the answer of the Roman Senate could be returned. The Carthaginians agreed to the terms. They were very onerous. The Romans say that they did not really mean to abide by them, but acceded for the moment in order to gain time to send for Hannibal. 
They had great confidence in his resources and military power, and thought that if he were in Africa, he could save them. At the same time, therefore, that they sent their ambassadors to Rome with their propositions for peace, they dispatched expresses to Hannibal, ordering him to embark his troops as soon as possible, and abandoning Italy to hasten home to save, if it was not already too late, his native city from destruction. When Hannibal received these messages, he was overwhelmed with disappointment and sorrow. He spent hours in extreme agitation, sometimes in a moody silence, interrupted now and then by groans of despair, and sometimes uttering loud and angry curses, prompted by the exasperation of his feelings. He, however, could not resist. He made the best of his way to Carthage. The Roman Senate, at the same time, instead of deciding on the question of peace or war, which Scipio had submitted to them, referred the question back to him. They sent commissioners to Scipio, authorizing him to act for them and to decide himself alone whether the war should be continued or closed, and if it to be closed, on what conditions. Hannibal raised a large force at Carthage, joining with it such remains of former armies as had been left after Scipio's battles, and he went forth at the head of these troops to meet his enemy. He marched five days, going perhaps seventy-five or one hundred miles from Carthage, when he found himself approaching Scipio's camp. He sent out spies to reconnoiter. The patrols of Scipio's army seized these spies and brought them to the general's tent, as they supposed for execution. Instead of punishing them, Scipio ordered them to be led around his camp and to be allowed to see everything they desired. He then dismissed them that they might return to Hannibal with the information they had obtained. Of course, the report which they brought in respect to the strength and resources of Scipio's army was very formidable to Hannibal. He thought it best to make an attempt to negotiate a peace rather than to risk a battle. He accordingly sent word to Scipio requesting a personal interview Scipio acceded to this request, and a place was appointed for the meeting between the two encampments. To this spot, the two generals repaired at the proper time, and with great pomp and parade, and with many attendants. They were the two greatest generals of the age in which they lived, having been engaged for fifteen or twenty years in performing, at the head of vast armies, exploits which had filled the world with their fame. Their field of action had, however, been widely distant, and they met personally now for the first time. When introduced into each other's presence, they stood for some time in silence, gazing upon and examining one another with intense interest and curiosity, but not speaking a word. At length, however, the negotiation was opened. Hannibal made Scipio proposals for peace. They were very favorable to the Romans but Scipio was not satisfied with them. He demanded still greater sacrifices than Hannibal was willing to make. The result, after a long and fruitless negotiation, was that each general returned to his camp and prepared for battle. In military campaigns, it's generally easy for those who have been conquering to go on to conquer. So much depends upon the expectations with which the contending armies go into battle. Scipio and his troops expected to conquer. The Carthaginians expected to be beaten. The result corresponded. 
on the close of the day on which the battle was fought, 40,000 Carthaginians were dead and dying upon the ground. As many more were prisoners in the Roman camp, and the rest, in broken masses, were flying from the field in confusion and terror on all the roads which led to Carthage. Hannibal arrived at the city with the rest, went to the Senate, announced his defeat, and said that he could do no more. The fortune which once attended me, said he, is lost forever, and nothing is left to us but to make peace with our enemies on any terms that they may think fit to impose. End of chapter 10